Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Jared Ludlow to talk about the Apocrypha. Jared Ludlow has taught in the Ancient Scripture Department at BYU since 2006. His PhD is in Near Eastern Studies from UC Berkeley and the Graduate Theological Union. His primary research interests are in Judaism and early Christianity. Recently, he authored the book Exploring the Apocrypha from a Latter-day Saint Perspective. I feel like I'm talking about something forbidden, like I stole it out of my mom's room or something. The Apocrypha. It's how some kind of treat it, yes. <laughs> Mysterious. Mysterious. Not part of our canon. Not quite up to snuff or something. We're going to explore it today. What does the Greek word apocrypha even mean, Jared? Kind of has a meaning of hidden things, something that should be covered. And so it's the opposite of apocalypse that we uncover, that we reveal. You could approach this term in a couple of ways. If you're looking at it positively, these are things that should be kept sacred and not just shared out in the public at random, not casting pearls before the swine. Or some took the approach that these are things that should be covered up and hidden and buried and forgotten, that they are not worth reading. And this term came to be connected with a group of texts that we call with a capital A, the Apocrypha. And that's really where we mostly hear about this term is the Apocrypha. We're talking about the Apocrypha, but in order to do that, we need to talk about the Septuagint first. How does that fit into our story? The Septuagint, in its simple definition, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And this kind of comes as a result of the spread of Greek colonies, and especially with Alexander the Great coming into the ancient Near East, a tremendous growth in Greek language, thought, philosophy, and so forth. And many Jews started living throughout the Eastern Mediterranean, and Greek became a common educated language for them as well. And it seemed to get to the point that particularly Jews, for example, living in Alexandria, Egypt, Greek was more common for them than Hebrew. And so they decided at some point that they needed to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek for these Greek-speaking Jews. And in the process of this Greek translation, additional texts were included that had not been part of the Hebrew Bible. Basically, these additional texts that we collect together in the collection that we call the Apocrypha. So the, these are additional texts in the Greek Septuagint that were not in the Hebrew Bible. I was surprised when I heard your account of the Septuagint that you have in the book that it wasn't the story I was told as a youth, that it was written in like 72 days or something like that, and there were seven scribes from each tribe, 
which makes an awesome story. How much historical basis is there to that story? That story comes from a text called the Letter of Aristeas that kind of tells us account of the librarian at Alexandria. Alexandria had one of the greatest ancient libraries, and they wanted a copy of as many books as they could, and especially books of law. And they knew the Jews had their book of law, the Torah, and so they wanted, according to this account, a copy of it for their library. And so, yes, that's where you get the tradition of taking representatives from each of the 12 tribes, bringing them to Egypt, sequestering them to make a translation. According to some accounts, they all come back with the exact same translation, and then that becomes known as the Septuagint. The truth of that is a little shaky because, A, we don't really have definitive 12 tribes at that time. Many of the tribes have been scattered and merged and so forth. You also have the issue of how it would truly be a miracle to have 70-plus different translations all saying the same thing. And, you know, really how much would they have wanted a copy of the Jewish laws for their own library? Oh, I thought that was a really funny point. They're like classic propaganda. Of course they want the Israelite religious history in their library. In reality, it's probably a long-term process. Probably did start with the Torah, the first five books of Moses. But then, you know, other books needed to be translated, the Psalms and the, the prophets and so forth. It would be quite a while, I would say, before you have a complete translation of the Hebrew Bible. Like the Old Testament, the Apocrypha is the library. What types of books do we find in the Apocrypha? Among these texts that we classify in the Apocrypha, we have some what we could call biblical expansions. They're like additional stories about Daniel, a retelling of the book of Esther, more texts associated with Ezra, Manasseh, the king, wisdom of Solomon. These are all biblical figures and then more stories told about them. We have others that I would classify kind of as heroic stories that tell these great exploits of individual Jews or as a nation of the Jews. For example, the account of the Maccabees and their uprising against the Greeks. Or we have a woman, Judith, who single-handedly basically stops an attack of an army. And Tobit also tells a story of going off and succeeding in, in this quest. And then we have a couple of wisdom texts, the Wisdom of Solomon that I mentioned earlier, uh, and then also a text called Wisdom of Jesus ben Sirach, or ben Sira. It's also sometimes known as Ecclesiasticus, not to be confused with Ecclesiastes in the Bible, but Ecclesiasticus. We know scripture isn't written in a vacuum. When we look at the language that the Apocrypha is written in, what does it tell us about the purpose of the writings? The language of these texts has been quite a scholarly debate over the years because we know that they were written in Greek at some point because that's the form that we find them in. Some of them we have found fragments of, for example, among the Dead Sea Scrolls in Aramaic or in Hebrew. Many think that some of these texts were originally written in Hebrew and or Aramaic and then later translated into Greek. 
And so what all of that, I think, tells us is this is a time period that, like the New Testament, you have these three languages floating among the Jewish community. You have Hebrew, always remains the religious uh, language, Aramaic, a common spoken language, and then Greek, an educated language. And so Jews are conversing and doing things in all three of them as a community. The Apocrypha has been accused of being a collection of pseudepigrapha. Why would that be a problem, and what is pseudepigrapha? The term pseudepigrapha means a text that is falsely attributed to somebody else. For example, we have the Wisdom of Solomon is one of these texts. Did Solomon actually write these snippets of wisdom? Or is somebody later using his authority and placing it under his name? And this was kind of a common practice in these later Jewish early Christian texts, is to use the authority of earlier figures for their own writings. And I think there's a few reasons for this. It's not kind of like today where they're trying to plagiarize or pass it off as it has to be from this person. But it's more kind of in the spirit of this person or as maybe a disciple or follower of this person, we want to honor this person with these texts. When you have scribes and and a scribal community, very little is actually written by an author. Think of the letters of Paul. Most of what is written is written by scribes and others. Jeremiah had a scribe, Baruch, and he shows up in the Apocrypha also. And yet, just because it's written by a scribe doesn't mean it's not from the person, but there they're right connected. But when you add centuries between the time that the person lived and when the text might have been written, then they're drawing more on the authority of that person. I'm now compiling together. If these works are pseudepigrapha, do we know who wrote them? In most cases, we don't know because they're never signed or this is the author. The one case in the Apocrypha that's different is the wisdom of Jesus Pensira begins by talking about how a grandson decides to translate these basically school exercises for a scribal school of his grandfather a lot of these sayings he used apparently in, in his school for the scribes to copy and practice on, either that he came up with or that were wisdom sayings of his day that he was passing on. But that's the only one that seems to be specifically attributed to an author from the actual historical time period. The Apocrypha is not part of the LDS canon. It is part of the Catholic canon. The Jewish people have used part of the Apocrypha in the past, but have rejected other parts. What role has the Apocrypha filled in various Christian sects? For the very earliest Christians, speaking of during the New Testament period, we see particularly, for example, the Apostle Paul. When he quotes from Scripture, it seems to be most of the time he's quoting from the Greek Septuagint. Occasionally it's Hebrew, and occasionally it's kind of his own translation. But for the most part, it seems like the earliest Christians used the Septuagint as kind of their Bible. And the Apocrypha was part of the Septuagint. And the Apocrypha was part of the Septuagint. Interestingly, though, we don't really have quotations from the Apocrypha 
in the New Testament. But we do see it in some other early Christian writings. Among the what we call the early Christian fathers, the bishops and so forth, after the apostles, they referred to the Apocrypha, they used it in their sermons and copied it into some of their writings. And yet it wasn't universally accepted. And so some Orthodox Eastern Christians for a while decided to go away from it, but then they seemed to come back to it. Some like Jerome, who was the one who translated the Bible into Latin, the Vulgate that the Catholic world used for centuries, he wasn't a big fan of the Apocrypha. He didn't think that they were very authoritative. Kind of under pressure, he included them in his translation, but he always had a little heading that set it off to note that he didn't really think these were scripture. And that's kind of been the lot of these texts throughout Christian history is it wasn't until later in specific councils that both Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Christians kind of solidified that, no, these are scripture. They tend to refer to them as deuterocanonical, meaning they've entered the canon later, not that they are of a secondary status, but that they've entered the canon later, but that they are part of Scripture. But when the Protestants came along, they, for the most part, read them, valued them as stories, but didn't treat them as authoritative Scripture. And kind of similarly with the Jews, even though they come from Jewish communities, they didn't really incorporate them into their authoritative Scripture. And a lot of that was their feeling that prophecy had ceased with Malachi and so forth around 400 BC, and a lot of these texts come later, and so it's after the age of prophecy. As I mentioned earlier, the Jews had a time in their history where they did refer to the Apocrypha. Do we know when and why the Jews rejected the Apocrypha? The Jews, following the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple in 70 AD, started gathering in councils in Yavne, for example, and it's really the beginning of the rabbinic, where the rabbinic movement kind of takes over. And it seems to be from these councils that they determined what should be scripture and what should not be included. And they had some issues with some of these additional texts found in the Septuagint. Some of it is language that they were written in Greek, whereas the religious sacred language was Hebrew. And then the other issue was chronology, that they seem to have come later, after what the time period that they believed the prophecy had ceased with Malachi and so forth around 400 BC. For the most part, they did not accept them as part of Scripture, but still would read them, and they were foundational texts to the celebration of Hanukkah, because the story of the Maccabees tells the story of Hanukkah and their victory over the Greeks. The texts in the Apocrypha are not read in the synagogue and so forth as part of their liturgy. There's a famous quote from Joseph Smith regarding the Apocrypha. There are many fine things in there, and you need to study them out to see if they're right. And we know that a couple of general authorities have quoted the Apocrypha in their talks. Besides that, has the Apocrypha had an impact on the LDS Christian tradition? The Apocrypha hasn't had much of an impact on the LDS Christian tradition. The primary canonical response to the Apocrypha is section 91 of the Doctrine and Covenants. As part of the Joseph Smith Translation Project, Joseph Smith asked the Lord if he should 
also translate the Apocrypha? And the Lord's response is no. And then as you mentioned, the Lord goes on and says there are good things in there. And if one reads with the Spirit, they can gain benefit therefrom. But there are also interpolations of man. Joseph Smith and other early church leaders would occasionally refer to the Apocrypha, mostly in the sense of it's part of the complete Bible, but they really wouldn't turn to it for authoritative scripture. But there are a couple of church history episodes where splinter groups felt like texts from Ezra's, especially Ezra, uh, of books that would be revealed later, that they could now reveal those books. And some people followed after them, even though Joseph Smith said, no, this is false, and so forth. So we do have some saints even leaving the main body of saints because of a text in the Apocrypha and leaders trying to use that to lead them away. But besides that, just occasional references in conference talks or or what have you that, again, mostly kind of wisdom sayings or occasionally things about maybe some prophecies that are in there that maybe have some relevance to LDS beliefs. We've been talking about the influence of the Apocrypha on various religious sects and whether the Apocrypha is part of the canon or not. This might be a good time to talk about what it even means to be part of a canon of Scripture and how a Scripture makes it into the canon. How does that work in the LDS tradition? That's a great question because you really have a whole range of what we sometimes refer to as canonized scripture, the standard works that we carry around, is bound and collected. But then we also say, well, conference talks can be scripture. Ensign articles can be scripture. Or certain statements by the church leaders can be scripture. I think you mentioned that one of the primary criteria to determine whether it's canon or not is whether it's been used. And as we just recited, the Apocrypha simply hasn't been used very much. That seems to be when the early Christians were trying to determine what their canon would be, that was one of the criterion was, is it actually being used? Is it consistent with other teachings? And if it's not really used and nobody's really quoting from it, copying it, and so forth, they felt like, well, do we really need it? And I think that's probably what a lot of LDS feel like. Yes, the word shows up in section 91 of the Doctrine and Covenants, so they feel like, well, I should know something about this. But because it's not part of our curriculum in gospel doctrine or seminary or something like that, it's really not used, and we're not that familiar with what's actually in the Apocrypha. Let's move on to the hidden gems of the Apocrypha. The Greek story of Esther in the Apocrypha is quite different than the Hebrew one in the Bible. What are the differences, and why might the Greek Jews have felt a need to correct the book of Esther? Let me start with that last question first. Why did they maybe feel a need to tamper with, change, add to the Hebrew version? And I think the bottom line is, is they felt like God was too much in the background. His, the name of God never shows up in the Hebrew version of Esther, even though it's assumed that he's behind 
the deliverance of the people during the time of Esther, it's never really implicitly designated that way. These later Greek translators seem to be uncomfortable with that, and so in the Greek version of Esther, the name of God shows up dozens of times. Much more religious activity is highlighted of prayer and fasting and going to God to seek his help. The other thing that they may have felt uncomfortable with is what is a good Jewish girl doing in a Gentile king's harem? And in the Hebrew version, there doesn't seem to be any issue with that. Whereas there really should be an issue, right? I mean, (laughs) eating wise, kosher wise, intermarriage is a big deal among a lot of Bible texts. And yet here she's being encouraged to marry a Gentile. The Greek version of Esther gets a little bit more into the mind of Esther and how she felt about this, that she didn't really like this, that she felt like she needed to do this to help her people, but she was not going to enjoy it a single day. And to wear that crown to her was more of a curse than some great fulfillment of fantasy that I'm wearing a princess or queen crown, tiara. I loved that story in the Hebrew version, though. (laughs) It was really fun growing up as a young maiden myself. But the Greeks, they corrected it for us. Yeah, she still becomes queen, and she still delivers her people. But what's emphasized a lot clearer is that she and Mordecai are instruments in God's hands, not just moving things on their own to deliver the people, but are working through God's plan. There are also additional stories about Daniel the prophet, famous for being thrown in the lion's den. What can we take away from these additions? A lot of these additional stories just kind of continue in the same characterization of Daniel as this wise man who is faithful to God in the midst of a Gentile environment and showing that his God is more powerful. One of my favorite stories is the story of Susanna, a beautiful woman who is lusted upon by two elders of the community who regularly meet at her husband's home, at Susanna's home, and they decide, independent of each other initially, that they were going to observe Susanna bathing in her garden, and then they come up and stumble upon each other and realize they both have the same intention, so they decide together to collude to get Susanna to lie with them. I feel like the first part of the story is a Netflix movie (laughs) plot. I can see that it would be intriguing in the ancient Near East when there's not much other entertainment to be passed around. Yeah, no, I think, and that's one of the values, I think, of the Apocrypha is it has some of these stories that are romantic or mystery-solving or adventure. Or scandalous. Or scandalous. And, you know, this would definitely fit into the culture now of Me Too movements where we have these two men who, because of their position and their status can try to force her because they know that the people will believe them over her. So when she decides she's not going to lie with them, then they 
turn to the people and say, look, we caught her with a young man who unfortunately escaped from us, but she was being unfaithful with this young man. And at that point, it looks like everybody believes them, and Susanna is going to be put to death. But that's where Daniel enters the story and is able to show that through separate interrogations, when he asks each of them, well, where was she when she was with this young man, and they both said different trees, then they were able to see that they were actually lying and that it was them that uh, were the ones that were trying to lie with her. And, and so it preserves her innocence. It shows Daniel's wisdom. And it's an interesting tale against the elders of the community, which maybe many felt were corrupt at that time. You mentioned that it gives us a good glimpse into diaspora Jews. The Apocrypha spends a lot of time in their stories with the Gentile-Jewish relationship. It must have been very challenging for Jews to remain faithful to their very unique practices and beliefs in the midst of Gentiles that are quite different and kind of very open about a lot of things. And so to maintain kosher eating, to observe the Sabbath, to go to synagogue or to study, you know, these kinds of things would be quite different. And and there'd be a real temptation to just assimilate, to just become like the Gentiles. And some of the texts like the Maccabees point out that there were many Jews that, that just went that way and would study in the Greek schools, the gymnasiums, and so forth. But the overall message with a lot of these is trying to help the Jews to remain faithful in the midst of that Gentile environment. Somewhat like for LDS, you know, that we have this phrase of being in the world but not of the world. And how do we negotiate when it's too far to become of the world and yet not just live isolated in a bubble when we're living in the world, we, we want to reach out and be good neighbors and so forth. How do we negotiate that so it doesn't become too much? And that's a lot of what the Jews, I think, faced, and that's what a lot of these texts, I think, address. Unlike some other stories we have in the Old Testament, I'm not going to name them. I love that Susanna turns out good. She prevails in the end. She made the right choice, and she's believed. It's the world's first courtroom drama. It's definitely a drama and engaging. So definitely a gem of the Apocrypha. You've mentioned the Maccabees a few times. It's a great source for that period of history. What do we learn from the Maccabees? The Maccabees tells the account of the Jews standing up against their Greek overlords and gaining a at least semi-independence for about a period of a hundred years. As you know, with the Old Testament history, the Assyrians came in and conquered, then the Babylonians came, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks. The Jews were just under one empire after another. And when they got really pushed with some religious changes trying to be forced upon them, then they rose up and were able to gain some military victories and then also regain control of the temple that had been desecrated with 
sacrifices of pigs on the altar and bringing in false gods into the courtyards and so forth, the Maccabees becomes this great symbol to the Jews of rising up and being strong against these imperial powers. And even today, they are kind of a symbol for when the state of Israel is being formed of rising up and fighting for their land. It even stretches to athletics. Most of the basketball teams are named Tel Aviv Maccabee or Jerusalem Maccabee or whatever. The Maccabees are the symbol of strength and military victory. Don't they have the Maccabean Games too? And they do have a Maccabean Games, which is like the Olympic Games, but it's for Jewish athletes to come and compete against each other. From all over the world. I was actually in Jerusalem when they were holding the Maccabean Games, and it was really fun to see these worldwide Jewish athletes. Which is kind of ironic because they're mimicking the Olympic Games, which are the Greek Games, and yet the Maccabees are the ones that overthrew the Greeks during this revolt. So There is some irony there. There is some irony there. What interests you about the book of Tobit, and why do you think it was so popular among diaspora Jews? The book of Tobit is, I think, just a kind of a fun read. It's a great tale. Um, it kind of interweaves a couple of different plot lines in it. Even though it probably critically it's not the best written story because it foreshadows things very clearly so the reader knows exactly what's going to happen. But in some ways that builds the drama because the characters don't know what's going to happen. And so those who read or listen to the story kind of know more than the characters within the story. It, again, is another story of a man who's trying to be very faithful to his beliefs, his covenants. In this case, it's set in Assyria, but he tries to remain faithful to that. He wants his son to marry within the Israelite family, and so that's part of one of the stories, is sending his son off, who then meets with a distant relative, kind of like what we see with Isaac and Jacob and their stories in the Old Testament. But the woman he meets has had really bad luck with her seven previous husbands. On the wedding night of each of them, they die. And so it sets up this dramatic wedding night when is the same fate going to happen to him? And even his new father-in-law is worried that, oh no, my reputation is going to go down even more because now another one's going to die. And I won't spoil it completely, but in the end, everything has a happy ending. And who doesn't like that? You mentioned Judith earlier. Tell us about her and what she accomplished. So the story of Judith is a great story of a very strong woman who, as I mentioned, kind of single-handedly takes down an army. Using her beauty and her wit, there's a lot of irony in what she says and how it's taken, but what she really means behind that. There are a lot of historical problems with this text, which probably are put at the beginning particularly to maybe tell us this is a tale, not to take it too seriously. But I kind of liken it to a lot of parables that are told in the New Testament. It's not whether this really actually happened, but that there's a, a moral to the story. There's some characteristic that should be developed like in the story. For example, the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
as far as I know, there wasn't an actual Samaritan that stopped and helped somebody that Jesus saw or whatever. But he tells a story, and it becomes so powerful and so strong that still 2,000 years later, we call people who stop and help others good Samaritans, even though they're not ethnically Samaritans or anything. In this story, she is able to rise up within her own community to strengthen, again, the elders. There's another little jab at some of the community leaders of her day that were faltering. And she says, no, I will take care of this. And she and a handmaid go, and they go into the enemy camp. And, of course, because of her beauty, the general feels like she's mine. And she kind of leads him on that maybe she will become his. But in the end, it's just to be able to defeat him. So this is kind of the last stand way of defending Jerusalem. If you write a book about a subject, you usually love that subject. Jared, why do you love the Apocrypha? There's a few reasons I love the Apocrypha. One is it gives a great window into what we sometimes refer to as Hellenistic Judaism, the Greek world that the Jews are a part of. And again, some of the challenges that they face because of that, trying to navigate within that new influence. There's some very interesting stories, great tales. The wisdom literature has some great sayings. It's just a a variety of things, some of which I, I really like because they're dealing with biblical things. And I always like to see how later interpretation or development is made on earlier stories. But then learning a little bit more about the people just prior to the, the rise of the New Testament. The Jews and early Christians of Jesus's day are pretty much the same as these people that are shown in the Apocrypha. I liked the stories that I read from the Apocrypha. Of course, this was my first engagement at all with the Apocrypha. But I'm still not convinced that I necessarily need to study it. So can you give me your elevator sales pitch for the Apocrypha? Well, I think for understanding the world of the New Testament, I think the Apocrypha can be really valuable because we see what the Jews who will become the early Christians were concerned about, what they were dealing with, some of their history in the Maccabees and so forth. I don't necessarily place it myself on the same level as other books of Scripture, but I think, as section 91 points out, there are many good things therein, and as we read with the Spirit, I think we'll be able to find things that will resonate with us, that will maybe uplift us, edify us. And then there are other things that I read and I go, well, that's certainly not how I view the world, the gospel. Thanks, Jared, for coming in and talking with me today. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Be sure to check out LDSperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.